Oh my god, that reminds me. I I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast at all. I did get the Intellivision from yes. my dad. It is yes. sitting in our living room. Whew, there is a D and D game on that. Oh my god. Okay, and so it we need might. To- I'm not sure exactly what the very first video game I've ever played was, but it was one of those in television games, and it might have been the D&D one. Hello, and welcome to Grumble Pack. Hello, and welcome. I am Eli Winstrom. I'm primarily a illustrator and game dev. You can find most of my work on my Twitter at E-L-I-D-E-E-Art. Or on my portfolio site, which is eliwinstrom.com. Like our Etsy store, too. Oh, yeah. I also, as a as a designer, I also sell stickers at this point, stickers and prints on my Etsy store at also E-L-I-D-E-E art on Etsy. Go ahead and check that out if you so feel the notion. And I am Jasmine Gower. I am a fantasy author and freelance editor. You can find me on Twitter at J-A-S underscore Gower, or you can find my author website at jasminegower.com or my editing website at publishing.jasminegower.com. So I don't have a fun segue for this episode, so I'm just going to jump into it. Today, we want to talk about uh, remasters, remakes, and spiritual successors. Yes. Which I think a first good step, a good first step would be to differentiate each of those. Yes, yes, yes. So, remasters. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's like a hard, there's like a government agency that has hard and fast rules. I do not believe so. I found several different. For me, yeah, a remaster is... Taking a video game that already exists and touching it up in places mm-hmm. to re-release it, most likely on a newer system than it was originally released for. Mm-hmm. Whereas a remake is taking the concept of a video game that exists and redoing it from scratch. Mm-hmm. Again, for probably a newer system than it was originally released for. And a spiritual successor is the people who made the original video game more often than not lose the legal right to continue yeah. making that video game. So they make a very similar video game that is unrelated in a legal sense. Uh, two small asterisks asterixes to to those definitions you gave remakes definitely have a kind of spectrum of how much the remake is because there's everything down to they change literally everything except the main character to they update everything with new models and new music but it's the same core gameplay etc yeah um spiritual successors i would also say that there is something to be said for uh, spiritual successors for folks who grew up playing a certain game and then got into making games themselves because everybody That's true. everybody considers stardew valley a spiritual successor right. to uh story of seasons slash harvest moon and concern they've never worked on any of those right so. that's a good point uh i guess it's also worth bringing up ports and how they fit into this because yes. i think very often i don't think straight ports really happen all that much anymore mm-hmm. Uh, most games are designed to be multi-platform to begin with. Mm-hmm. Ports, I feel like, are kind of a subcategory, or rather, remasters are a subcategory of ports, yes. I would say. yeah. A port is just taking a video game that exists and putting it on a different system, sometimes mm-hmm. with minor changes or additions. Which sometimes is necessary for the switch over to certain consoles yeah. or handhelds, but stuff like, yeah, Nintendo re-releasing the original Pokemon games 
on the DS. It's just straight right. copy paste. Yeah. So do we want to jump into, I have a list here of things, of talking points that we can go through. Specifically, do we want to go over, we start with remasters, talk about remakes, and then go into spiritual successors. Yeah. I think that's the level that's in descending order. They become more fun to talk about. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I know that it definitely a big one that both of us have played as far as remaster slash re-release going is uh, Skyrim, unfortunately, because that is a thing. Okay, well, here's the thing. I did not play any remasters of Skyrim. Oh, neither have I. I only played the original. (laughs) Neither have I. But um, we have a basis in the Skyrim game. At the very least, we've played it before. We both know that one. Um, And I I think also it's important to bring up, because that's definitely one that has been milked, That's the kind of situation that gives remasters a really bad name, because I think there's a time and a place for remasters, much like riding your bike indoors, according (laughs) to Professor Oak, there is a time and a place. And Skyrim really proves how much the video game industry, especially the AAA video game industry, is willing to just kind of keep churning out the same product with only minor adjustments over and over and over again. And I guess people buy it? I guess. I don't know a single damn person that has played any version (laughs) except the original Skyrim, but they keep remastering it like once per year for the past now 10 years. It's absolutely wild. And I don't understand who, like how they make money off of that, but I guess they do because they keep doing it. Uh, And it's not really bringing a lot to the audience play mm-hmm. plays these games because if you played you played it the first time they the remasters are not adding enough to justify buying it again Mm-mm. frankly unless you're one of those people who's really got to stick up your ass about graphic <laughs> fidelity <laughs> there's also the uh, the version of uh, remasters that I enjoy especially as someone who wasn't able to play on consoles or PCs until later in my life is when franchises are taken and put into essentially a single game so that you can play something that was released yeah. over, like, 15 years yeah. in one and separate thing. like, anthology collections mm-hmm. for, for older franchises especially are a really awesome thing for, for remasters. I feel like that's yeah. one of those situations that calls for a remaster. Yeah, it's, uh, the three that are coming to mind for me specifically are, there's the Kingdom Hearts, where they made it yes. possible for you to play it on a single console, yeah. which before that was impossible. Game changing. That is, you can see what that adds to the consumer because, like, even if you, we can get into the like <laughs> final mix international yeah. version bullshit later. But even if you already played the games, if you want to go back and play through the whole series again, you have to pull out like seven different yeah. consoles. And if you want to play the games the first time, you have to own those seven different consoles. Mm-hmm. So for re-releasing it, whether you've played the games or not before, it makes it so much more convenient to go back and replay through the whole series where it was just a fucking nightmare before. And I shouldn't have done it that way to begin with, but whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the same kind of thing with the other two that I'm thinking about, which are um, the Borderlands, which had their Handsome Collection release, which was, you could play all of the Borderlands uh, main games and the pre-sequel, which was nice, because then you didn't have to switch between consoles. It was just one singular disc where you could follow through, and then there were minor touch-ups to the first couple of games so that they were actually enjoyable to play and looked okay. And then there was the recently done uh, Mass Effect Legendary Edition, Mm -hmm. which I, from 
what Flynn has said from playing it, there was some some updates that were needed for the first game that they then added onto that. So I've, think... I've heard only good things about that one. Yeah, uh, which is nice. I'm, yeah. I'm happy for Mass Effect fans. I don't yeah. I don't go to that school, but I'm happy yeah. for them. As a, I, I think I've, I'm pretty sure I brought this up before multiple times on this podcast, but um, playing Mass Effect One before a, a a remaster was available was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Especially on, if you were, say, doing the Steam version on your PC, you got to a certain point, I believe it was Vermeer, where you had to open up the console and turn off the lighting, because otherwise the game would just crash. That is bad shit to me. That is like a, <laughs> a fucking AAA title published by one of the biggest video game companies on the planet, and that's a thing with one of their products. Oh yeah, it's just there. It's oh just sitting God. in there. Oh, don't worry, I'm going to be talking about Vampire the Masquerade later on. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, would this then be a good time to get into the concept of, like, final mixes and... Yeah, fancy, yeah, for sure. Fa- fancy versions of games uh, that are developed, typically, it seems like, in international markets, uh, especially Japan, tends to do a thing. Well, Square Enix does this with a lot of their games. They release the game in Japan, then they release it in an international market. They probably add a few things, just because they've had the time to add a few things, uh, to North American and European releases, then the Japanese market is like, we want that stuff too. <laughs> so they re-release the game in Japan under a fancy name uh, with that added stuff in it from the Western versions of the game, and then maybe add some other stuff too. <laughs> and then the Western audience is like, we want the new stuff too. So what they've been... For, for a long time, though, it, it stopped with that the fancy version mm-hmm. released in Japan and the Western markets just didn't get the, the, the fanciest version of the game. And what they've been doing with a lot of their remasters recently is using the fancy version of the game as the basis for the remaster oh. and then releasing that globally to everyone at nice. the same time. Uh, which is what they did with Final Fantasy XII's remaster, mm-hmm. which is the, the best remaster I've ever played. It's like, that game like really benefited from that kind of just minor updates to the graphics mm-hmm. and those few details they added to the, the international version, they called yeah. the fancy version. Even though the original game still is very solid and holds up, and I could pull out my PS2 and pop it in and play it if I wanted to, but god, that's such a hassle. <laughs> Last note about remasters, um, specifically so I can talk about Grim Fandango really quickly, I think there's also definitely a space for um, updating just single games for current generations, because mm. there's often, especially with, like, if you're playing on a Windows PC, often when the operating system updates, a lot of games just no longer function. Yeah, yeah, for PC games, remastering is a good way to avoid your games just becoming vaporware. Yes. Uh, so stuff like uh, a lot of a lot of old Tim Schafer titles were uh, remastered recently, and Grim Fandango is the one that people talk about a lot, because that right. was a really good game. Very um, popular, yes. I've gotten pretty far in it, but it, I hit the same issue that I did with point-and-click things when I was younger, which is I hit one puzzle that didn't make sense to my tiny little brain, and I stopped playing. <laughs> I, it's just been sitting in my Steam library, and I'm like, I'll... Oh, I'll get to you. <laughs> you get in line like everybody I'll else. I'll get to you as I click play on Stardew Valley. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I am realizing mid-fucking-stream while we're recording right now. Do we also want to talk about, I don't know how if this would fit in at all properly, but do we want to talk about post-game DLCs at all? Oh, sure. Even briefly? Yeah. Um, they're on my mind right now because uh, Outer Wilds just released a DLC that I've been 
fucking so excited that's, for. No, that sounds like a good plan because that's what I'm hoping for for The World Ends With You now. It's just like, I hope Excellent. they make some post-game DLC so Do I wanna... can get more content. Let's talk about some remakes. 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 Uh, the first one I have on here, uh, because it was a huge fucking deal, is the Final Fantasy VII remake. remake. Yes. Um, which you have experienced and you've experienced so, both games. So the bonkers, yes, I, I know everything about Final Fantasy. The bonkers thing about Final Fantasy VII Remake is that in the end, once you actually sit down and play the game and get to the end, you realize it wasn't a remake (laughs) at all. (laughs) That was literally a trick that Square went out of their way to trick people with to make a point. And it's so fucking good. It's basically an AU, actually. Gotcha. It's not an actual remake of Final Fantasy VII. Uh, and the main thematic core of the game is about, like, what what counts as canon, what's, like, the <laughs> real version of any given story if you retell it in different ways. I like that a lot. It was really interesting, and a bunch of Final Fantasy VII straight boys got super mad about it, Aww. and I was very happy for them <laughs> to see them suffering. <laughs> Yeah, so that's a very weird example in which the the subtitle remake refers to, like, the concept of reality and not the (laughs) game's place in the Final Fantasy franchise. Okay, so uh, somewhat related to that, um, I also wanted to talk briefly about the new Pokemon Snap game. Because it has been listed as a remake I've seen before. It's a sequel. It is a full sequel. Todd comes back and he's like, I'm an adult and hot now. Because that's what video games do when they age up characters, (laughs) I guess. And he's wearing his little bracelet with the colors of his original shirt on it. Yeah. I mean, the one that really comes to mind for me, I know we already did a whole episode about this, but it's Spyro remakes. That is also next on my list. Because, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting case where Insomnia just lost all of the original code so yeah. they had to remake it from absolute <laughs> scratch couldn't no remastering something that's not there it's anymore like they they couldn't re recycle any any mm. assets any code anything from the original they had to rebuild it from the bottom up i mean I, I mean like i guess ideally if you're doing a remake you should probably start from scratch mm-hmm. and just work off of the concept that's there instead mm-hmm. of the actual like assets and yeah. programmatic content, but That's... the fact that they had to do that out of absolute <laughs> necessity because I, I just can't believe <laughs> lost their code. It's, yeah, we've we we need to do a whole episode on video game archiving at some point because we both have strong feelings about this. Strong, but, um, strong political feelings about it. Yeah, but I think, I think the idea of a remake that would rely on the original assets or code would, if you can still rely on the original assets and or code of a game, I think it's too new to have a remake out already, yeah, essentially. That's, that's true. It's like the original assets for Spyro wouldn't have helped mm-hmm. them at all in 2017 or whenever they yeah. remade it. But. No. And that's that's again the I think that's really kind of the hard line between like a remake a remake and a remaster is they literally had nothing to remaster they had to go yep. with a remake if they wanted to do anything in this and I think they came out with a pretty solid game oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, or series of games I only played the first one all uh, the way through <laughs> the second two are not quite as good um, but. Yeah. That was also true of the original Spyro games. Again, we already yeah, did a whole. It's episode fine. We did a whole that. episode on it. Um, I think I I did enjoy the direction they took all the art on that. That you yeah. really, it really shone, Sh- shone, shine. <laughs> I don't actually know. I have two English degrees, and I don't actually know. 
Spiritual successors. Let's fucking go. Yeah. I am so excited. Okay. First off, I want to talk about Vampire the Masquerade, which Mm -hmm. is an interesting case in that the original Vampire the Masquerade was released as a tabletop RPG, which is a a game that I very much enjoy and I want to play some more of. It had a couple branching versions of that tabletop RPG, and then it came out with two video game versions, Mm -hmm. which I would consider when something fully changes platforms like that, I would consider it a spiritual successor, not necessarily part of the franchise, because there's so much that has to change between a tabletop role-playing game and a, like... Uh, I think we're getting into the realm of adaptation at that point. That's fair. This is fair. But I did want to talk about that briefly, because there's not a lot of, I think, examples of tabletop games that translate into video games, because, like, they've tried to do that with D&D, and it's always been a fucking mess. They're making another Baldur's Gate. Anyway, I, I, I'm sure that's not, from what I vaguely remember of Baldur's Gate 2, that is not point for point, like, <laughs> yeah. mechanically similar no. to D&D. It's just set in the D&D universe. But... Yeah. No, I was uh, thinking of the old D&D arcade game. Next on our list, uh, I have Ukulele, because I think that's a very direct version of what you brought up at the very beginning, which was the original copyright holders yeah, lose the copyright. That's what I was thinking, too, yeah. primarily. That was, because that was fully a bunch of artists and game devs got fired. Yeah. And then went, I, I guess, okay, let's do our own little thing over here, because it's Banjo. Uh, Banjo-Kazooie to Ukulele. It's very, it's very cute, it's very sweet. Ukulele's a fun game, and I really like collectathons a lot, because I grew up on them, and it was a nice example, I think, of a, a collectathon because those don't really happen that much anymore. Yeah, it's uh, it's fallen out of favor yeah. for sure as a genre. It's it's a very nineties genre, but, I think. Yeah, but that kind of thing where creators leave a company for whatever reason and then kind of go on to make basically a reskinned version of the games that they are known for making, I feel like is happening a lot more recently. Oh, probably yeah. because of crowdsourcing and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But the I probably should have looked up what this game was called before I decided to <laughs> throw it out there as an example. The creator of Castlevania's new yes. games that I do not remember what they're called. I could not tell you. Blood something? I don't know. <laughs> but he like he can't keep making Castlevania games because Konami owns the IP, even though he created it. So he is making aesthetically and mechanically similar games with different characters. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of thing that happens now. Um, we did briefly bring up uh, Stardew Valley versus Harvest Moon, which I yeah. think is, I think it's my favorite version of a spiritual successor because yes. you've got someone who loves something so much that they take the time to make their own thing yes. directly inspired and, by that. And they t- do what is, this is like my favorite way to create things and the type of creation that I like to see the most. They take something that they love and they're like, I love this. These are the things about it that I love, but these are the things about it that I don't love, so I'm mm-hmm. going to fix those things yeah. specifically. It, it becomes a very distilled version of, like, the good parts of games, yeah. which is really nice. It's like um, a lot of RPG maker horror games inspired other horror games that then happened. It was like a, the, the direct line between Yume Nikki and the, the Lisa franchise, like yeah. that sort of thing. Wonderful. I love it. Extremely good. Um, the last couple titles I have are we're getting, I think, a little bit wibbly into the uh, spiritual successor thing, because how do you feel about classifying something as a spiritual successor when it is created by the same people? It's just not, it's clearly not in the same 
universe, the same world. I, like, yeah, it does. I mean, these all do get a little wibbly because I'm thinking about like, where does Pathologic Two fit into this mm-hmm. dynamic? Because it is a sequel to Pathologic, but it is also basically a remake, yeah, and or spiritual successor. Like, it, mm-hmm. because of the weird wibbliness of the concept of reality that's happening in that <laughs> game, anyway, and like the explorations of what does fiction mean. Uh, it's it's all very indirect and abstract and Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think for a lot of games, it's there's enough going on artistically that trying to like categorize it into one box or another as a video game product doesn't quite make sense. Fair. Or it makes sense no matter how you do it or whatever. Fair. Okay, then I'm just going to go down the list of what I have and we can chat about each of those uh, specifically. Uh, First off, I'm sorry, I'm starting with one that only I can talk about very quickly, is the Deltarune and Undertale games. Uh, They just came out with... I know, they came out with uh, episode two, which I'm very excited about. So you've got your Undertale, which was a a huge success by, by Toby Fox. Very wonderful game. So much fun to play, lots of nuance to it. And then you've got Deltarune, which is not a sequel. And it's not even set within the same universe, but it does share characters. It shares a very distinct aesthetic, and the game plays the same way. It is... I think part of it is the players are supposed to figure out what how these things are connected because the undertale had a lot of you kind of got to figure your shit out i'm not going to spoon feed this to you so i think that's what it's leaning into but i think i also can't distinctly say that it is a sequel or if it's related or a prequel or anything like that it's that's yeah kind of the final fantasy 7 remake situation again yeah. like the first 90% of the game you think you're playing a remake of the first third of the original game and then that turns out to not be the case at the mm-hmm. end and that was the whole point all of all along was to trick you yeah. and to make you engage artistically with the story. It gets even weirder because a couple characters in Undertale are aware that they're characters in a video game, but that's not even going to touch on that. Yeah. Um, we have talked about Bloodborne on this podcast before. We had an all oh, episode. Yeah. And then, uh, so, because you've got the Bloodborne, Dark Souls sort right. of... The Soulsborne expanded universe, universe yes. which <laughs> includes Sekiro and maybe Elden Ring? Oh, no. Mm. I've only played Bloodborne. <laughs> See, I... Quick tangent to shit on the Marvel Expanded Cinematic Universe, but... Um, Get them. I, I think Marvel and Disney doing the thing where they were like, and then every new title we come out with is tied in with all of our previous titles together. And that making either people who are creating things or the people consuming them wanting to string everything together into one cohesive universe, I think is... It's, it's it, gotten so boring and it's aggressive. A, it's a form of mental poison. It's terrible. It's it's, 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 it's terrible, and I'm sick of it. I say this as someone who loses my goddamn mind over Dissidia. <laughs> Dissidia is still, like, not entirely clear if it's canon to all of the rest of the Final Fantasy games. It's just like, hey, this is a fun concept that we're going to have fun with. That's that's the thing, is because there's a distinct difference between going, and this is a specific crossover that we are having fun with, and then a bunch of fans going, and then I saw this skeleton that reminded me of a character from the other game that this company has released, which means they take place in the same universe, but this one is a post-apocalyptic, like, stop, stop it. I get that we're having, like, you can have fun with it, but after a certain point, you need to just... Related, the, the fan theories about, like all the Pixar movies mm-hmm. taking place in one singular universe on one singular timeline. Like, I get most of the people talking about that are just having mm-hmm. a good time with it. And yeah. It's like, I, it's, 
I, w- I wouldn't special interest over a Pixar no. movie, but you do you. But the people who are just like, no, yeah, that's a, that's a real thing, and Disney should do that. It's just like, there no. is nothing interesting about Brave and Cars taking place in the same it's, universe. It's so, That's like... just some dumb bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah, I, do, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum when you're having fun with IPs, I guess. But if you're having there's a line fun in the sand. being silly, it's yeah. one thing. If you're like, no, I would love it if Mega Corporation Disney actually did that. It's just like, I just... Yeah, I don't At a certain to... point, you do actually have to read a real book. Like, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I don't want to sit down and hear the cliff notes of a three-hour YouTube video you watched while you disseminate this information to me. It's fine. I would consider Bloodborne a spiritual successor. All right, we're making a point game. about Bloodborne. Yeah, I would consider it a spiritual successor. It's both the games, uh, they, they have a lot of, they share a lot of vibes. Oh, yeah. And uh, from what I understand, the gameplay is fairly similar, and they're also in this sort of, like, this shit's hard. Yeah. This shit's very difficult, yeah, and that's kind of their Mechanically brand. very similar. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't bend over backwards to try and explain that they're in the same universe, etc. As far as I can tell, neither Bloodborne nor any of the Dark Souls games have plots, so... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very set sort of storyline that you're following it's along with. Mood. Yeah. Yeah. Along with that, I know you've played a lot of Hades. I don't know if you've yes. played any of the other Supergiant games. I have not yet. Okay. Again, um, on my list. Yes. Because uh, the first one I ever played was Bastion, like, years after it got released. Right. From what I can gather, all of the Supergiant games play very similarly. You've got your isometric top-down beat-em-up with beautiful art styles yes. and very surprisingly in-depth storylines for an isometric top-down beat-em-up. I mean, if you're going to go for a brand, honestly, that's the one to go for. Oh, yeah. It's it's beautiful. And I would... Because none of these games are directly related to one another. Right. That I know of. Don't come for me. But you can definitely go from playing Bastion to playing Hades and go, oh, yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see how these two are connected, if not within their plot or within their world as a as a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes video games just have the same vibe. Yeah, and that's okay. I don't know if that's enough for them to be considered, like, the same <laughs> series, or... No, I think, I think that's really where spiritual successors fall more often than not, is if it's not a direct reskin from folks who couldn't have the... couldn't have that thing, it's a direct vibes translation, yeah. more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think really does get down into, like, the purest form of... Not to get fucking pretentious on our video game podcast. Yeah, go for it. Um, but uh, I think that's one of the more pure forms of, like, enjoying something like that, is to be able to distill the vibes that you like and it, it's take again, them with you. It's, it's the concerned ape effect. Yeah, it is. It's... Like, he really just narrowed down on what he liked about Harvest Moon mm-hmm. and identified what he didn't like and made that into something that he did like also. Yeah. It's got good taste because I just clocked in 500 hours of Stardew Valley this week. No, it's great. Oh, um, along those same lines, uh, I literally yesterday started playing Cozy Grove finally because it's been on my Steam list since the Wholesome Direct that introduced it. Yeah. But uh, I would consider that a spiritual successor to kind of the Animal Crossing franchise. Um, It's very... I think Polygon called it Animal Crossing's chilled-out cousin. 
and I would I would agree with that. It's very um, that nickname gives me stress because my <laughs> issue with Animal Crossing is everything is too chill and slow. Oh no no no. Um, so so Cozy Grove. I'm gonna go over Cozy Grove sure. real quick. You are a spirit scout, and you go to a little island where you're supposed to help out the ghosts that live there, and it has basically a hard end for each of the in-game days, which translate directly to our days. It's it's hooked up to to our real-world clock, like sure. Animal Crossing is. And after a certain point, you can't do anything aside from just collect more resources, but you have a finite amount of resource slots. So there's a point where the game is just like, you can, you can turn me off now, it's okay, whereas Animal Crossing doesn't really ah. do that. They're just like, yeah, get, get the money, get the money, keep getting the money, you should gather more fucking fruit, I guess. But yeah, it's 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 very nice and it's very sweet and it's this I, I love a cute 2D isometric game. <laughs> it's good shit. It's very you good. can also run a little bit faster than and you can make all the characters talk much faster than the Animal Crossing oh characters do. God. <laughs> it takes so long to do nothing and Animal Crossing. It really does. It really does. I just spent twenty minutes and nothing happened. Blathers. <laughs> Gulliver can Gulliver can suck it. Um, <laughs> Gulliver, one of these days, I'm gonna just toss you back into the ocean. Because <laughs> I don't need to hear your fucking soliloquy. Are there any more spiritual successors that you can think of off the top of your head? Because I think I've gone through my list. I'm The ones that are coming to mind are more kind of like, there is a game in a genre that is a smashing success, and it really kind of sets a standard for the rest of the genre that everyone else follows for a while. Mm. I'm thinking like, uh, Civilization V and how games like Endless Legend are very similar mm-hmm. kind of stylistically and thematically but it's more of a adherence to the genre conventions mm-hmm. set by Civilization than actually yeah. trying to follow in Civilization's footsteps. Yeah, that's that's the the lines are pretty blurred with spiritual yeah. success. For, for some genres it's like, like Mario Kart is mm-hmm. The kart racing. It is the kart racing game. Like, it is the er kart racing game. So every other kart racing game, even mm-hmm. though that's a whole genre in and of itself, mm-hmm. is taking notes mm-hmm. from Mario Kart. I wouldn't say that every kart racing game is a spiritual successor to Mario no. Kart, though, because yeah. then I think we're, we're disregarding the concept yeah. of genre way too much at that point. No, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the, um, I'm sure this happened beforehand, but I consider it the PUBG effect. Where yeah. one game comes out and they do something that it is such a hit because it's I think not been done properly before yeah. or it or it was but it was much earlier in the game and then just hundreds of copycats come out everything everything is now a uh, battle royale where the area gets smaller yeah. and it's it, that would not I would not consider that spiritual successor I would consider that bandwagoning yeah fair enough. <laughs> But I think I think the, the the lines are blurred enough. I think that you can kind of decide what you think a spiritual successor is to you, to yourself. Yeah. But uh, these are what we ha- these are our choices and our lines in the yeah, sand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, did we want to talk about DLCs? Oh yes, thank you for reminding me of the DLCs thing. Yes. I have a lot of complicated feelings about DLCs. Oh, same. Um, let me start off by saying, addressing Bioware directly. <laughs> If you take the ending of your game and refuse to release it with the game, that's not DLC. That's being a prick. <laughs> you can't 
cut off the conclusion of a game and then release I, it later for more money and consider it a DLC. I know that we already talked about this with our mm-hmm. like three hour long yes. <laughs> Dragon Age episodes, but the fact that they did that in Inquisition after they tried to pull that with the DA2 and it blew up in their face is wild to me. Like, good yeah. for you, I guess, that you didn't have to cancel Inquisition before you were done making DLC for it. Yeah. But that's that's exactly what happened with DA2. Yeah. And the fact that you went ahead and tried it again a second time is wild. Yeah. No. Um, so, yeah, I would consider a DLC something that adds to the original game, either, like, aesthetically, a uh, new gameplay mechanic, more, uh, more game. Yeah. But it cannot be contained within the main storyline. And yeah. if it if it is, it's not DLC, you're just charging for the rest of the game. Yeah. That being said, I want to talk about some of my favorite DLCs, which are from the Borderlands games. Oh, okay, yeah. Most of the 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 core of the Borderlands DLCs are uh, they're like collectathons because right. uh, Borderlands, shooter, shooter yeah, shooter leaders, that's what they're called. Yeah, right? shooter leaders. Yeah, um, because that's what Borderlands is. Shooters. One of the fuck, you, fuck, I'm a fake gamer. Fuck. You have gun number go up. You get shiny object. Yeah. that's what it is. Uh, because that's the core of the game itself, and. Uh, that means that all of the DLC for it, minus stuff that's like extra gun, cool skin for gun, extra character lines, etc., are um, very, very aesthetically tight. And with the uh, the newer games specifically, there are some DLCs that wrap up character stories, which is really nice. But um, they wrap up like background character stories. Specifically, my favorite one was the uh, you have to yeah you have to help your two gay dads put on a wedding. There are these two characters in the game who, uh, one of them is like a, a the inheritor to a gun tycoon's uh, fortune, and the other one is a um, archaeologist, and he studies monsters also. But you have to help the two of them basically uh, get their wedding together. But surprise, the ring that they were using is possessed by a lich. So they so the one of them gets possessed and also there's a bunch of spooky Cthulhu shit all around and it's it's very it's lovely and it's great and I really enjoy the way that Borderlands does their DLCs because it's a lot of stuff like that. It wraps up stories but not the ones that were integral to the core of the game itself. Now after starting the episode by shit talking Skyrim, mm-hmm. I will say there I think it's called Hearthstone. Hearthstone, the the house building yeah. one? Yes, that's the Hearthstone. That is a really good DLC. Mhm. Mhm. Adding that I don't the the domesticity, <laughs> the base building. It's, it's about the building a house. <laughs> I I enjoy when games let you do that sort of thing, especially big adventure games because yeah. but the the fact that they took an element of the game that was there and built upon it so that it actually was interesting or yeah. it was not the base game was yeah. uh that's that's the kind of shit that DLC is Should... useful for. Yeah. Then you have like the full game and it's a full game when it releases. And you have an aspect of it that maybe wasn't fully fleshed out, but still functions well enough for what it is. Mm -hmm. And then you release a DLC that fleshes it out so that it's Mm -hmm. its own gameplay thing that matters and is engaging. Yeah. And then you don't have to save that shit for when you remaster the game ten years later and are like... We added fishing now. <laughs> you can fish now in Skyrim. Everyone it, give us $60 again. 
Yeah. There's also very much, I think, to be said about um, basically like that is using DLC to push out a mechanic that wasn't core to the game, but you ran out of time or funding for it. Mm -hmm. So then you can still release a finished game, but be like, and then we also wanted combat to happen. So here's the combat pack. Like... I think, I think that's a very useful way to both navigate the hellscape that is the current state of video games and yeah. and the, the market, etc. Is, is there any uh, example of like a DLC that really shines to you aside from the Hearthstone situation? I mean, I don't even want to talk about the Sims expansion packs because that's its own <laughs> That's a different, situation. yeah, that's a... The Sims, the Sims, especially now, is weird in that it's kind of become like a living document mm-hmm. of video games despite not being like online <laughs> at all. But in the case of the Sims DLC, I think it works, again, when they add gameplay and mechanics instead of just pretty things Here's some aesthetic that stuff, modders yeah. make for free anyway, so... Yeah. Oh my god! I should say, we should say that for a whole separate episode. We can do but, a different um, episode on modding, yeah. But yeah, because I really want to talk about the the state of games that encourage modding and those that don't, and that yeah. sort of thing. I want to talk about that. Yeah. Um, um, but going back to Dragon Age, I will yes. say the DLCs that I do like, uh, Legacy and Mark of the Assassin, were were made with criticisms of the core game in mind. Like they looked at best kind what people were saying about the base game and were like, yeah, that didn't turn out the way that we ideally wanted it to turn out. So when they made the DLCs, they paid special attention to and prioritized those elements of the game. They made really good DLCs out of that. I, I'm trying to come up with other DLC stuff to talk about, but literally all I can think about is the fact that the um, Echoes of the Eye has finished downloading on my copy of Outer Wilds, and I want to play it so fucking bad. Oh my god. I guess at the end of the day, (laughs) to wrap it into with the theme of remakes and remasters and all that, is like, DLC is useful when it adds something new to the base game Mm -hmm. that was not achieved in the base game that maybe could have been, or that they wanted to do but ran out of resources for or they didn't expect until they got feedback from the players Mm -hmm. don't want dlc that's just shit that they could have put in the game from the beginning and decided but we can make seven extra bucks off of this if we just Mm -mm. cut it out now and sell it separately on the day the game releases I know that we're not taking, like, a fresh, hot, new stance here with, like, day one DLC is bad, but day one DLC is bad. It's terrible. It always is. It always it's, is. It's a fucking scam. Yeah. On that note, I, I think I want to play some more Supergiant games now. I gotta look back at, like, I've heard Transistor's good. good. I, I have been really in the mood to replay Hades because this is about the time last year that I was yeah. playing Hades, I, and I'm like, it's up for the PS4 now? I still haven't finished comfier. Hades. I still haven't finished it. I'm playing it at my desk. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we both have video games now that we want to go play. <laughs> I actually have to do work now. But. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> I got stuff I need to do. But um, yes, thank you so much for listening to this uh, slightly scattered episode of Grumbleback. What? Our freeform video game podcast is not <laughs> completely rigid and organized. We tried at the beginning there. We had like lists and bullet points that we went down. <laughs> I've given up on so many things in this panini. That's fine. It's fair. But yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Grumble Pack. We will see you next time. 
Thank you and goodbye.